All right, parental discretion is strongly advised. Brothers, sisters, niggas, bitches, whoever's listening, if you're black, I'm about to wake your motherfucking ass up. This is going to be a long ride to the far side and shit. To my brothers that know me and shit, you already know it. To the ones that know me and don't know this side of me, by the end of this one and shit, your wheels is going to get to turning. Right now, the red or the blue pill. But you must choose. Choose wisely. Because I'm about to wake your ass up. This journey begins from outer space through inner space and you come out of the womb. Strap on your motherfucking chin straps cause you might just do like R.E.M. and lose your motherfucking religion. Part one. A nigganomics. We about to get Jim Crow like a motherfucker. Your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, your ancestors. That's fucked up. Gonna use the morning star whip on him. Because he don't wanna give up his African heritage. Oh. Your name is Toby. Now tell me your name. Enrage you, it should piss you Tell off. It's supposed now to. I'll ask you again. Tell me your name. Armageddon means that we're gonna get ours. Listen to the accent of the slave master whipping. Yes, they had the Irish in charge because when you look at white society, their class, the Irish are white niggas. Italians are white niggas. So to get some um, 
pull in white society. They said, okay, we'll do your dirty work. You know, the Dutch. Yeah, the Dutch with the boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the good ship Jesus. Yes. Your name is Kuta. Remember, the motherfucking war ain't over yet. Your name is Kunta. Fuck Toby. Everybody got their own deity, except us. The Asians got their own deity, right? And their deity look like them. But when it comes to us African-Americans, indigenous, or whatever you want to call it, us niggas, everybody else looks like them, except the deity that we worship. Why is that? I want you to think about this and this is real heavy and shit countries get together to make themselves superpowers but when a country aligns itself with God and you the enemy you're fucked welcome to the curse of ham that's what happened when you want to put justification and you don't want to take the responsibility of really shitting on another sector race culture or whatever, you want them to obey, right? When you want everybody to obey, you throw God into it. The curse of Ham. So one of the one of Noah's sons looked at uh his father. It, 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 it seemed homosexual. It seemed homosexual. And just keep it a buck and shit. The homosexual way. And then we curse for that shit. You know what I'm saying? And it even wasn't that the next descendant. It was like a descendant next over and shit. That get cursed. The curse of the black skin. Right. Oh, man. 
they try to use religion as justification and shit for the things that they do to set to set up a hierarchy rule control of your motherfucking mind right and they say they the enforcers of this god now you gotta think this guy doing this shit to your black ass. I mean, hey, uh, he's lowball saying, fuck you. Hello. Wake up. Wake up, nigga. They taught you up was up was down and down was up. God was dog. You know what I'm saying? Told you that. You know what I'm saying? And I know what I'm speaking has a, a deeper esoteric meaning to what I'm speaking so we're going to break shit down here on the Chronicles and shit. This is going to be intense. Strap on your motherfucking chair straps because, nigga, we about to motherfucking get it. Let's open your goddamn third eye all the way up. Man, I got mind control over Debo. He be like, shut the fuck up. I be quiet. But when he leave, I be talking again. talked about religion. One of the things that you mentioned before in, in a, another interview is the most destructive thing that's taken place in the black community has been the religions that's always been introduced to us. That's a fact. Explain that. Well, oftentimes when we look at religion, they don't give us an opportunity to study the historicity of the place or the geographical locale from which the information derives. I oftentimes find that many of the religions that our people make subscriptions to, they was confronted with those religions in light of them being oppressed by the very people who presented the information to them. And when I ask people, when was the Islam introduced to us as a people? Or when was the Christianity introduced to us as a people? Or when was the Judaism introduced to us as a people? Or just the books in general. We oftentimes find that it was introduced to us while being in a state of servitude. And when I ask, can you show me when it's introduced to our people, void of being in a state of servitude, it's moot. The opportunity to suggest to me otherwise is moot. When we ask, when we do a philological perusal of these corpus, religious corpus or these texts, and we ask, like if the Quran says that Allah gives you the, the book in this language or Arabia, it sounds great. But then when we undergo the philology of the corpus, we find that the contents of the book was written before the language evolved. So there's no Quranic Arabic, right? Before the Quran, there's the Quran first and it's written in Syriac. And we even look up the words, and if we go into the etymology of these words, or we do a thorough philological perusal, we see that it was written in Karshuni, which means they didn't have all the letters to transmit the information in Arabic because it didn't evolve yet, so they borrowed other people's scripts or figures or characters in order to uh, transliterate the information, and in turn, we see that if we go into the Christian language, right? The, we'll see if we study the Peshitta, New Testament, written in Syrian, right? Not written in the Greek. 
that many people think the New Testament is originally written in, we see that Christians called on Allah first before Muslims called on Allah. His name is in there several times. The Christians worshiped Allah before Muslims were even spoken of. And in fact, there's no documentation of a Muslim until hundreds of years after Prophet Muhammad's death. We don't see no documentation or acknowledgement about Prophet Muhammad's life until 200 years after his death. Doesn't mean that he didn't exist. It just means if I try to sell you a story that exists 200 years thereafter, you would think it's suspect. But with religion, we pacify that. We'll be also told that Prophet Muhammad was illiterate, but the Most High gave him a scripture. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would grant this man a scripture. His angel Gabriel would come and tell him to ikra, or to read in the name of his sustainer. But he's illiterate. But then we look up the word for illiterate, and we see the word umi there. And we see that it's a homophone. So we know that this is a word that has twofold meaning, but it's pronounced the same way. And the word umi means unlettered or unlearned in a scriptural language. So it doesn't necessarily mean he was illiterate. It just means he couldn't understand the language in which the information was presented to him, presuming that he even exists in the first place. But reading and comprehension is lacking in religion. And it's not strictly enforced to learn the language that these religions have their inception in. And the reading and comprehension is lacking in religion. And it's not strictly enforced to learn the language that these religions have their inception in. And thus, I believe that is the mechanism for being able to control people. And if they go for it, then you know you got them. So now you got a whole bunch of people saying that an illiterate man was endowed with something to read and convince everybody else to read it. Only religion can create that kind of ideology. Also, I've traveled the world to go to the places that's spoken about. And you go on my Instagram, you go on my Facebook. I've, I've went to King David's temple. And then upstairs is where they say that Jesus had his last supper. And then you go a few blocks down and you say, okay, what else is going on here? You find the place where they say God laid the first stone to create the planet Earth. Jesus was by the Mount of Olives and he looked over there. About Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. I've been to Jerusalem. Yeah, I've been there too. And I stood in the space where they said God created the world, which right. is also next to this the Dome a, of the Rock. Yeah, that's the Dome. Well, it's, 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 Muhammad it's in the Dome it. of the Rock, right? It's inside. Yeah, inside the, the Dome temple, of the Rock. Yeah. Which is, you know, is like this close to each other. Right. Literally, God created the world here, and Prophet Muhammad ascended there. The Mount of Olives is over there, yeah. where Jesus cried that the temple would be destroyed. And after a while, I've also been to where Moses was found by the well, which is literally a few feet away from where Mary was hidden in a cave inside of a church. Both of them are named, both of them were babies. Both of them have someone named Mary that saved their life. Jesus was tempted after fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. Moses uh, went through the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. They both were in holes. That's called typology. And it's a very uh, popular writing style during that time to extrapolate data from Old Testament and leverage it into New Testament uh, theory or analysis to, to kind of reinforce the older conviction about God but if we're not educated in how to approach the reading then we think all these people existed and maybe they did yeah well you know <laughs> that's, that's the thing and remember remember they didn't teach us how to read man I got mind control over Debo 
He be like, shut the fuck up. I be quiet. But when he leave, I be talking again. Don't front, black family. When you go to that church, who you praying to? That blue-eyed, blonde hair. He don't, he don't look nothing like your motherfucking ass. Wake up, nigga. I'm about to open that third eye to fuck up. We about to get it. I'm about to open your third eye to fuck up. White lady, get to talk. Damn. What does that God look like? Um, uh-oh. Oh, the reality of it is when he came here, he didn't look like me. So what am I going to do about that? Uh. I'm going to make him look like me. So for hundreds of years, we've been telling you, and now you have to keep in mind that we took away any other God that you might have through force, through fear, through pain, through uh, uh, any means necessary. So now I'm going to give you a God, but I'm going to do that in a way that it's gonna further me. So I'm gonna give you a God that looks like me so that when you bow down to that God, you're bound down to me. Let's use nigga science. You know when you watch Maury and we'll say, that baby don't look like me. That, that ain't my baby. That baby ain't mine. Now put your picture face next to that blue eyed Jesus and let's use the same analogy more truth let's get it talk white lady we have taken that and changed it you remember when Jesus went to Egypt? He hid in Egypt. The people in Egypt, honey, they're, they're not white people. How could he hide that? See, so that we've done that. We've given your people a God that looks like me so that you don't have any qualm about bowing down to me. Because this is the image of God. I don't know of any sin that we've committed that's greater than that one. Wake up, nigga. Oh, boot licking, buck dancing, scratching, shuffling. Messy Jesse Jackson. You keep, you keep. I am a somebody. I am a somebody for keep hope alive. I am a somebody. I don't rightly know who the hell I am, but I am.
person to uh, black people? I'm so glad you asked that question. I believe that the liberation and salvation of the black nation must be brought about by black people gaining a thorough knowledge of self after our 500 to 6,000 year Holocaust where we have lost over 600 million. And so I believe that that education process must be a process of two steps, inspiration and information. So I seriously give information, but black people are a people of rhythm and spirit. So I also give inspiration. Thing is, if, 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 if what he's saying is not true, let's bring somebody forward to prove him to be a liar. Muhammad, can you please tell me why it's blacks who are killed in, in Rwanda and other places? And can you please tell me why from Haiti, blacks from Haiti are just risking their lives to come here to the United States of America? I'll tell you if I get a chance. Black people have been robbed, as I said earlier, of a knowledge of self. And when you rob people, sir, of a knowledge of self, then it means that they, be, they start to take on the characteristics and the nature of their oppressor and their colonizer. And his mind, by automatic, systematic, remote control, rules in our people. He gives them the guns and the weapons and the drugs and the alcohol, the way you did our brothers, the red man and the red woman, brothers and sisters, the way you did our Latino brothers and sisters, and then you pit one against the other and then say, look at what these people are doing. Man, I got mind control over Debo. He be like, shut the fuck up. I be quiet. But when he leave, I be talking again. All men are created equal. Fuck not true. Because some are smart, some aren't. The family subscribes to a racehorse theory of human development. When you connect two racehorses, you usually end up with a fast horse. Secretariat doesn't produce slow horses. They believe that there are superior people and that if you put together the genes of a superior woman and a superior man, you get a superior offspring. You have to have the right the right genes. I have a certain gene. I'm a gene believer. Do we believe in the gene thing? I mean, I do. I have a great genes and all that stuff, which I'm a believer in. Well, I think I was born with a drive for success. I was born with a certain intellect. The fact is, you have to be born and blessed with something up here. God helped me by giving me a certain brain. It's this. It's not my salesmanship. It's what? This. You know what that is? the brain power. I have Ivy League education, smart guy. I have like a very, very high aptitude. I'm pretty good at English. I always did very nicely in English. I mean, like, I'm a smart person. You're born a fighter, and I've seen a lot of people that want to fight, but they can't. Some people cannot genetically handle pressure. I always said winning is somewhat maybe innate. Maybe it's just something you have. You know, you have the winning gene. Frankly, it'd be wonderful if you could develop it, but I'm not so sure you can. You know, I'm proud to eugenics that's funny actually I'm I'm not uh, actually I'm not pro-choice and I'm not pro-life you know what I mean I'm not I have nothing I have such an issue with these two-party 
systems. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois said it best. He was like, there's just one evil party with two names. But we get into this idea that you have to be on this side or this side. You have to be right or left. You have to be liberal or conservative. I'm neither of those. And specifically when it comes to abortion, if you notice the things that I said, I never said the word abortion. I never said any of that stuff. Like, even that, that's why I said I'm not pro-choice. I'm, I'm not pro-life. I'm pro-knit. You know, because my mother did go to an abortion clinic to abort me. Uh, and But that never... That never made me say I feel one way or another because as a man, I don't have the right to speak on what a woman should do with her body. And I don't feel like the government should have the right. I don't feel like any organization that makes money should have the right to tell a woman what she can or cannot do with her body. A woman should make that decision. And so that's why I don't speak on that now. But if we want to just get to the facts, there's certain things that I don't agree with because of the way that this system is set up. And when I speak on things, whether it's Planned Parenthood or even the idea of the government having a decision on what women should do with their bodies, I'm against that totally because I feel like it's a systemic issue. When you look at what, you know, Margaret Sanger and, and, and you know, uh, the all the people who follow, you know, eugenics and all that stuff, it was all about cleansing. It was all about... Uh, you know, Margaret Sanger said that, you know, she wanted to exterminate the Negro race and that she was going to use her organization that she founded to do so. And, and, it, and it actually didn't have me. It wasn't to me. It wasn't about abortions. I never speak on abortions. It was more about the sterilization and, the, and, and what they started with when it comes to just actually ethnic cleansing where they actually said we want to get rid rid of a class of people a group of people you know what i mean and, and they like to to they like to label feeble-minded or lower class using terms when they were that's what they used in public in private they were talking about the black communities and so it starts with everyone from the sterilization they were utilizing these clinics to to say oh yeah we're helping you but they were injecting them with diseases i mean and it goes not just from there we can go to the tuskegee experiment we can go to the 80s and 90s when they were injecting people with hiv like all of this stuff is real but people don't ever want to talk about that because they rather have the simple conversation are you pro-choice or pro-life that's not what i'm that's i have I, i'm not in that fight i don't i can't speak on that william argues for urgent depopulation efforts in africa Prince William recently warned that the population growth in Africa is putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the natural world and driving many species of animals to it. Why is it always what's going on in Africa, not what's going on in Europe and America that's putting the pressure on the world? Why it gotta be Africa? Because they want that cobalt. They want the minerals, the resources, the gold, the gas. America's vaccine narrative now mirrors Nazi eugenics propaganda. On Tuesday, November 7th, Natural News will be releasing a video lecture detailing the covert agenda to eliminate people of African descent from the human gene pool. Vaccines are now being spiked with a sterilization chemical. This is the report from LifeSite News based on a doctor out of Kenya who noticed that this so-called tetanus vaccination campaign was being given only to young women of childbearing age 
and that it, it includes five doses of tetanus over more than two years, which is not what tetanus normally requires. So they had the samples sent off to a, a lab in South Africa, and it turns out that the samples of, of this vaccine, which is provided by the United Nations and the World Health Organization, contained HCG, a chemical designed for population reduction. What this chemical does is it causes a woman's body to form antibodies that attack and kill the mother's own baby. This is a chemical that turns a mother's body into a killer of her own unborn child. It causes spontaneous abortions and of course... Now ladies, when you go into the abortion clinic, killing off your black baby for profit, you don't even have a clue that they're trying to have you bring extinction to your own people. Results in long-term sterilization. These women are targeted and selected because of their country of origin and their skin color and their race. They are Kenyan women and they're being targeted because they're black and because they're from Kenya. The World Health Organization doesn't do this to white women in Norway, for example. This is, this is very specifically targeted based on race and country of origin and your genetic profile and dark skin color. So this is a... This is an extinction level event. Wake up, black people. Wake the fuck up. I'm gonna help you. It's gonna be tough and shit. But I'm gonna help you wake your goddamn ass up. Race-based medical crime against women in, in Kenya. Mark Watts is live now in South Central Los Angeles with tonight's report. Hello, Mark. Hi, Jerry Jane. I'm sitting outside a South Central LA home where I sort of lived for 24 hours exactly two weeks ago today. I felt in order to properly tell this upcoming story of this 10 year old boy whose life has been absolutely ruined by violence. I felt that I had to move in with the family and live with the boy. Before I show you exactly who he is, let me introduce you to the rest of the neighborhood. Welcome to 90th Street near Compton Avenue in South Central LA, perhaps the most diverse block of real estate in the inner city. I don't know, it's kind of weird. Two o'clock in the afternoon, it's a melting pot of blacks, whites, Latinos, and Asian Americans. Young and old live here. Pit bulls and other dogs often run wild. So do the chickens. At times, 90th Street takes on the look of a foot stomping block party. The old lady at the corner plays the music. It's usually BYOB. The popsicle man brings kids refreshments and police they're always invited. Hi, how are you? It's a neighborhood where the playful scream of children can be heard as often as the scream of sirens. Make no mistakes, this block is owned and operated by gangs. So, once a day, the streets are cleared of kids' play so two rival gangs can engage in senseless gunplay. 3 o'clock p.m. You can set your watch by it. You can set your watch by it. And, and more than fear is excitement. Why are you guys fighting each other? Uh, uh, get along. Something gonna go down today? No. They just start shooting down the street. The bullets can go anywhere. They shoot them, they shoot them back. 
I mean, you guys go right head to head, right in front of each other. Yeah. Ten-year-old Ricky Allen has been dodging the bullets for much of his young life. He has a front-row season ticket to the Daily War Games. Unfortunately, he has seen about all the live action he can handle. When I see a pile of people getting up on one house, I scoot back. You ever run in the house or, or hit the floor? Yeah. Sometimes you got to hit the deck, huh? Yeah. 3.30. My 24-hour companionship with Ricky revealed a life of constant exposure to frightening brutality. Five years ago, someone tried to kill Ricky. The scar you see above his lip was caused when a broom handle was thrust through his jaw. He fell through a glass coffee table three years ago and crashed head-on into a telephone pole on a skateboard when he was eight. Physically, he's okay, but Ricky receives almost daily psychiatric treatment for a host of mental disorders and symptoms of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Symptoms such as depression, anger, and sleep disturbances. Oh, this never happened to me. Ricky is the second oldest child. He and his family often talk about moving, but they're stuck. His mom is unemployed, his dad is in prison, and really, the only foundation he has to base his life upon is what he sees on the streets, 4 p.m. It's not often a photographer captures a gang shootout in progress. These pictures are dramatic. But for the kids living here, it's just a rerun of yesterday. It's funny because sometimes we're so used to it that when it's late, everybody's disappointed. I'm not scared. I see it every day. A body laying in the street. I'm Los Angeles Times columnist Pat Morrison. In March of 1991, first there was the videotaped beating of Rodney King, and less than two weeks later, there was the videotaped killing of a 15-year-old black teenager named Latasha Harlins. The woman who shot her, a Korean shopkeeper named Soon Ja Du, was convicted of voluntary manslaughter but served no jail time. And that sentence, as no much as the Rodney time. King case, tended to influence what happened more than a year later in the riots in Los Angeles where Korean shopkeepers were targeted. Now Brenda E. Stevenson, who's a history professor at UCLA, has written a book called The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins about those events, delving into the case and the three women, the victim, the shopkeeper, and the judge who were so involved in this decision that made such ripples to this day, still does, throughout the African-American community. Brenda Stevenson, the subject of my column, Pat Morrison Asks, in the Los Angeles Times. That judge, you already know. You, oh, you got a chance to see the fuckery in the system, and the individual, it just didn't make no sense. No justice, no peace. And that's what the fuck happened. It's an eruption. It's the same fire from slavery. Y'all remember this song?
for the Africans here in the United States, period, point blank. If you ain't down for the ones that suffer in South Africa from apartheid shit, you need to You probably didn't even know what this song was about. The night niggas took over, and I witnessed it. It all came to a head. The night, the niggas took over. Let's listen to one of the damn jurors and shit, right? Let's let's see what the juror got to say. Morning. Good morning. Are you still convinced this morning that your decision was the proper one? Absolutely, without a doubt. No hesitation. No hesitation. Listen. For you, what was the determining factor? There was no one single determining factor. The uh, video was uh, helpful and it also was detrimental but um, without it it clearly showed what was going on there the fact that uh, Rodney King was not being abused Rodney King was directing the action what? he was the one that determined how long it took to put him in handcuffs What? because as long as he fought the patrolman the policeman had to continue to try to maintain him to keep from having more erratic, felonious actions. What? What if it was you? What if it was you? What if it was you? What if that was you? And if that was a white person, right? It would have been action. See, the problem is here, it has to be the same for everybody <sighs> have you ever got hit with a nightstick lady I got hit with a nightstick just because I didn't move fast enough you, you say King controlled the action at what point when he was lying there taking blows do you think he lost control of the action Good question. He did not lose control. You don't think he ever lost control he of the action? He never lost control. The only time the action stopped was when he finally submitted to arrest. And even during the handcuffing, he was still fighting. For during his the life. process, he was laughing and uh, uttering uh, sounds. And uh, no, he was in complete control. The mayor, the governor. Wait, 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 wait. Some fuckery. Where you at, Tyrone? God damn it. Where my, where my Tyrone at? Tyrone, good morning. The juror said he was laughing. How you know he was laughing and making sounds? Why? That, that, that ain't no audio. It's just video. You see how corrupt shit is? Go on YouTube right now look at the Rodney King footage and shit. It ain't no audio. So how you know he was laughing and making these sounds, right? He was making sounds in your head, white juror, because he was out there getting his ass whipped. Y'all think that he was getting divine justice? Yes, Rodney was 
driving, drunk, probably under the influence and shit, license and registration and shit like that. But there's plenty of others that do that same shit and they don't get their ass whipped. Let that be eight officers whipping on a white dude. Governor, even the president of the United States uh, expressed outrage after seeing the video. And for a lot of people, the video spoke for itself. Why didn't it speak for you? The video did speak for me when I first saw it on the air. It said, whip that nigga. When this incident first occurred, I was appalled. But after you sat through the trial with all of the evidence, the witnesses, the um, uh Everything that was there, the video too, you had to see uh, what was going on. Had Rodney King uh, gotten out of his vehicle, as he was ordered to do, um, and complied with the policeman's order. Oh, so, all right, you can, look, we all know the hood rule, comply or die, right? That's just what it is, comply or die. She has no clue that these events, when you have a confrontation with an officer, right? You didn't grab your wallet. You left that pager low. You put your motherfucking hands on the dashboard, stern wheel, outside the window. You even got down my, my road dog, dad, right? Dad, right? Now, we probably couldn't do that at this time. But, you know, the officer made him get down in the rain and shit, right? And they got in the tussle. And he got off. He got off. The judge said that the officer was doing too much. And that's what this is. Doing too much. When we see it, we see some shit that nobody is supposed to see. Did that white family tape that shit? We ain't supposed to see that shit. And when America got a chance to see that shit, it opened your eyes and said, welcome to the world of niggas. What we go through. That nothing would have happened to him. The other two gentlemen that were with him in the vehicle got out quietly. Excuse my French, old white bitch. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. I'd have had shit happen to me. Right? You know what I'm saying? Old GP, you got to understand the shit. When you out there in the witching hour and shit, you versus them? Oh, oh, oh. Talking about talking about we'll give you a goddamn ticket stick it right in your goddamn pocket and tell you have a nice motherfucking day make you get on that goddamn ground and shit touch that hot ass hood and shit ask you questions like yeah what sex you claiming and shit you know what I'm saying come on come on oh oh boozy old white bitch I'm sorry I, I you know I ain't here to you know critique my white people and shit like that but but oh this old rickety crickety rickety crickety where's the beef type bitch and shit ain't got no clue grandma ain't got no fucking clue what goes on they just said let them monkeys be monkeys and let them monkeys ape out my control and uh, were searched for weapons and were handcuffed. That's all it was. That Rodney King chose to uh, do otherwise. Do you think it would have mattered had Rodney King been allowed to take the stand? I really couldn't uh, speculate on that because that was not uh, something for us to look at. What? But uh, based on 
the evidence that was produced and given to us, provided to us, the photos uh, of Rodney King. Um, couple of the photos. All right, you yeah, had photos first, but you said that, you know, some some audio. You heard him saying, what's the audio? Where the audio at and shit? You know what I'm saying? And this is your same government, right? Right. Your, 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 your same government, right? Oliver North, right? Watergate, right? The Iraq War, first one, both of them. Shit, 9-11. It's your same government, right? <laughs> right? You got your faith in too. And you don't think them good old boys would do any goddamn thing to get off because they got the power, they got the absolute power to do so. Days after the incident that had been taken, the uh, doctors, the medical reports on his condition, um, he was not uh, that badly hurt. For what? What part do you think bitch, was played in the Bitch, hold up. Hold up. Them a Billy Club. Them Billy Club. Bitch, you know what I'm Billy Club? He wasn't that badly hurt. Bitch, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. I'm always trying to blame a goddamn nigga. You know what it is, though? They don't give a fuck. You know why? Because it ain't they children. It ain't happening to they family members. It ain't in their community. They don't give a fuck. I think race was introduced into it, but actually, in my opinion, it had absolutely nothing. White bitch tried to be non-racist, which she is racist. Racist did happen. Oh, late at night. Late at night. Where my black people at? Late at goddamn night. It's you first, them and shit. How many times you done been pulled over? What do they do? Bust a U? They bust a, what we call a bitch. They bust a U-turn. What do they do? They get behind you. Beep, 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 beep. Where you going, boy? License and registration, please. Try to ask you some difficult questions. Because they know nine times out of ten, you ain't got that shit. Man, I know partners that told me they was out there serving crack, serving crack, and the police bust them, right? The police bust them, took the damn money, put the crack in their goddamn pocket, and tell them, get back out there and do the Lord's work. Motherfucker. Motherfucker. You just happy that ain't happening in your goddamn neighborhood. Absolutely nothing to do with uh, the incident. Mm -hmm. Had the man been uh, white, had he been uh, of oriental descent, had he been anything and acted as Rodney King did, he would have been given the same treatment. You you were part of a jury that was composed of 10 whites, one Asian, and one... How do you know? You ain't never got the treatment. You hear hear what she said? She said, right, she said that if he was white, he would have got the same treatment. That's bullshit. If he was white and he was drunk, they'd be like, hey, brother, we'll drive you straight to your motherfucking house and shit. We'll make sure you get safe and home safely. Don't, Don't worry, we got you. Asian dude, they ain't gonna take Asian dude to jail and shit. 
No, no, they gonna tell him, hey, get your ass off the car, sit on this goddamn curb and shit, and call one of your motherfucking family members to uh come pick you up. But if you a nigga, if you a motherfucking nigga, if you a motherfucking nigga, you already know where you going. You going to the county, goddamn it, because they need to make some motherfucking money off you. Remember, nigga, what's your name? Your name, Toby. I knew Natasha Harlins. I went to school with her. She didn't take no shit. You have to be that way in Los Angeles. In contrast, this teenage girl, Latasha Harlins, was shot and killed by a merchant in South Central Los Angeles. The merchant, Sue Ja Du, was convicted of voluntary manslaughter. Her sentence, five years probation, no jail time. They say something is terribly wrong when harm to this dog produced jail time and the death of Latasha Harlins did not. And it sends a bad message to the community that a human life is not valued. Listen to the Korean guy. Just listen to the Korean guy. It sends a bad message to the community that a human life is not valued. Strange. Very strange. Maybe that's our system. I don't know. How is it very strange? If that shit was happening to your people... Korea would back y'all up and it'll be a fucking problem, right? But notice he said, strange. It's like, honestly, we are the elephant in the room. We're the joke. We're the joke. We're the straight elephant in the room. So corrupted. Exactly. The judicial system is so corrupted. Very much Most so. people say unreal in comparison to Latasha Harlins. We say unfortunately is very, very real for African Americans. Yes it is. Some strong emotions vented today in Los Angeles as anger increases over a disturbing allegation that in the 1980s the CIA knowingly permitted black neighborhoods to be flooded with crack cocaine. Freeway Ricky Ross is a street legend. He went from being a poor, illiterate, aspiring tennis star to one of the biggest drug dealers in Los Angeles history. After being part of an international drug ring and making up to $2 million a day, he's starting over from scratch. I will tell you, Director Deutsch, as a former Los Angeles police narcotics detective, that the agency has dealt drugs throughout this country for a long time. Give you an example. Shortages of marijuana are now being reported. I don't want to sell drugs, but I'll probably have to. This gentleman right here in the blue shirt. Director Deutsch, I have a very simple way that you can prove to us that you intend to get to the bottom of these allegations. And that is the CIA in 81 was overrided under the Reagan administration, when President Ronald Reagan signed Executive Order 12333, he set up a parallel government headed by George Bush, for which Ali North also worked, and they privatized 
U.S. intelligence, for example, the gentleman that he brought up, Wheatley, not Alexander, but Wheatley, who, Scott Wheatley, who was said by the government to not be involved with the government, it turns out he was involved in a private operation as part of the, what's called the Bush asteroids. But that you have a private network run by George Bush and Ali North, not the CIA. You won't find the records in the CIA. They're not there. They're in these private, privatized intelligence agencies. Will you pursue that? Will you pursue Ali North and George Bush and the, the massive documentation? All these gentlemen, like this gentleman here, the co-defendant of Ricky Ross. Ricky Ross is doing George Bush's time. This little dot has massive implications. This little dot in the middle of South Central LA affected the course of the nation. This was one of the first arrests of a crack user in 1981. So what does this dot have to do with you? A lot more than you might think. Give you an example. Shortages of marijuana are now being reported. I don't want to sell drugs, but I'll probably have to. Ross, thank you for joining us today. A lot of poor neighborhoods here in Los Angeles have suffered from gangs and drug abuse, and a lot of people blame you for that. Now, how do you think that you can help and rebuild these communities? Well, I think I'm the perfect one for this job that needs to be done because, I mean, if you haven't lived this life, it's like a, an experiment. You know, my life has been an experiment. And had I not been through this experiment, then I wouldn't know what happened. You know, most people don't know what happened in South Central. They don't know how you get started selling drugs. They don't know how you get out of selling drugs. They don't know how you can go from being illiterate at 28 years old to being as literate as I am now. You know, basically, I, I, I do law work. You know, yeah. like I said, I'm filing my paperwork today in my lawsuit. What do you think about the rapper Rick Ross taking on your persona? He's never sold drugs. He's never been involved with any type of crime. You know, he was a college boy, played football, from what I understand. And he was a prison guard, you know. And, and, and you know, to be a prison guard, your record has to be spotless, you know. So uh, he's, he's definitely created a fraud and, and uh, um, you know, he's perpetrating a lie. In bringing crack cocaine into L.A.'s poor black neighborhoods. The government needed this money to fight this war over in Nicaragua against the Sandinistas. Russia had gave the Sandinistas $100 million to fight with. Congress had cut off all the money from the, the Contras. So now the Sandinistas had an advantage. Reagan and Bush had made the Contras their pet peeve. They felt that if Russia took over Nicaragua, they would be too close to America. They would be in our backyard. I believe that they felt it was more valuable to sacrifice a particular sector, sector of America and a race of people in America in order to save the whole country. So they let these guys open up pipelines. Danilo Blandon, Norman Nessus, and the rest of the crew that, that, that worked with the Nicaraguan Connection, because I knew about 10 or 15 different Nicaraguans that was all inside of this, you know, Contra organization uh, that was selling drugs. So by them allowing these guys, or basically turning a blind eye, because I don't think the government necessarily gave them the drugs or, 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 or whatnot, but 
in a sense, they sanctioned it because they turned a blind eye. They knew that these guys were selling drugs, but they did absolutely nothing about it. I also believe that had they not let these guys sell drugs, it's possible that I would have never become a drug dealer. What does that say about one? Reports of the alleged crack epidemic began surfacing in Los Angeles. Crack rock was cheaper, purer, and easier to get than traditional cocaine, and it took lower income areas by storm. A drug so pure and so strong, it might just as well be called crack of doom. By 1983, the epidemic had taken hold of the city, turning communities into war zones. And soon, crack became a national crisis. Today, there's a new epidemic. Smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an uncontrolled fire. thought was to get more money, to get more of it. <laughs> because you never got enough. All you're trying to do is catch the first high that you received. It's like you're chasing something that you never catch up with. Just chase that one here. Just chase it all night. Then the nights turn into days, and then weeks. <laughs> then you start hocking off stuff, selling stuff. I used to mess around with guys just to get money. Prostituting myself. I didn't... Oh, my God, I didn't like it. But I did because I had a, a problem. Because this say. How many of y'all actually got raised by your parents? And they all gonna sit there and go, not me. My daddy went to jail, my daddy got murdered, my mother was on crack. As a former Los Angeles police narcotics detective that the agency has dealt drugs throughout this country for a long time. What does that say about our government when they're looking the other way while a deadly substance is coming into our communities for the sake of fighting a communist regime in Central America. Well, it says that our government will sacrifice the people to accomplish a goal. And this is not the first time that they've done that. Uh, we've known numerous times in our history where they have sacrificed, especially the black man. In that case, it's tough to hear that the ends justify the means. They felt that it was more valuable for them to keep Russia out of America, you know, and, and for America to keep its way of life. Do you think that the CIA or any other sort of government agency is still helping to funnel drugs into America? Well, I mean, if we look at Afghanistan, you know, when Taliban controlled uh, uh, Afghanistan, uh, the flow of heroin was, was almost zero. And now it, it's, it's up, you know, hundreds of percents more than it was at that time. So it makes you wonder, I mean, you know, what is really going on? How can the Taliban control drugs and now America can't, you know, control it? You know, heroin is on the rise again. And controlled uh, uh, Afghanistan, uh, the flow of heroin was, was almost zero. And now it, it's, it's up, you know, hundreds of percents more than it was at that time. So. It makes you wonder. I mean, you know, what is really going on? How can the Taliban control drugs and now America can't, you know, control it? You know, heroin is on the rise again. And it's Afghanistan heroin. The CIA connection to the Contras and the huge influx of drugs into Los Angeles wasn't exposed, wasn't made public until journalist Gary Webb started to report on it. Gary was on a mission, you know, uh, he didn't approve of what I did, but he said that if I was in prison, all the other players should be in prison right there with me, and that I shouldn't be used as an scapegoat. You know, he felt that, that, that justice should be 
level. You know what I'm saying? Not to where if you got political pool or you got money or or, or this that 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 you can escape justice. And drug abuse act imposed harsher sentences on crack than traditional cocaine use leading to a decades-long debate that the law was unfairly targeting minorities and lower-income neighborhoods who couldn't afford the more expensive cocaine powder. Incarcerations in L.A. skyrocketed. By 1995, the California Department of Corrections increased its Black and Latino inmates from 21,476 to 88,376, more than a 400% increase. This led to broken families, an overblown foster care system, increased violence, and a growing skid row that crippled the nation. That's until a long overdue correction was made. In 2010, Obama put an end to Reagan's Anti-Drug Abuse Act. While many feel it was too little too late, it was a step towards correcting a racially skewed prison system. But was it enough? Now there are recent debates about a return to Reagan-era laws. Is the war on drugs proving to be a success? Or a failure. Coming into LA via Mexico has made the city the center of the crack cocaine epidemic. Battles over the crack trade turn the streets into a war zone. LA County sees over 2,500 murders in 1992, over seven a day. In charge of stopping the violence, Daryl Gates, LA's hard as nails top cop. We have a war, a shooting war, not in the Middle East right now. We have it on the streets of every major city in this country. And you know who's feeding and supporting the enemy? The casual drug user. Gates creates an elite paramilitary unit he calls Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, or CRASH. Gates launches raids with military names like Operation Hammer. In one weekend, nearly 1,500 people are rounded up and arrested. Dozens of officers raid apartment buildings, punching in walls, even leaving their own graffiti on the sides of buildings. Los Angeles Police Department up under Daryl Gates, they was kind of looked at as gang members themselves. I mean, it's like, man, they was untouchables. The story of the militarization of American policing begins in many ways in Los Angeles. That is the first police department to start incorporating the methods of counterinsurgency from America's foreign wars directly into policing. The police were being told for now 20 years that they were fighting a war, that more and more of the public was the enemy, and thus war is the appropriate set of methodology. The country was given a choice, and what happened was it doubled down on the war on drugs. Imagine coming out the womb seeing your parents, smelling the smell of cupcakes, solid gold playing 
on the TV, some Isley Brothers, and thinking your home is a happy home, a happy place. And then you realize you're in Beirut. What are you supposed to do? I'm glad to be a survivor. I know so many people that perished. You know what's so funny? I've known gang members that put in work, right? But nothing ever happens to them. It's always innocent people that perish. I can remember my first funeral of my friend that got murdered. He didn't even get a chance to see his unborn kid, and that affects me to this day. I wake up, and I see individuals that have a choice, but rather choose the dollar. constantly being talked about. In the past 10 years, the number of Google searches for the word gentrification has more than doubled, and mentions in the news and in literature have gone up. So, people are talking about gentrification, but they often mean different things when they use the term. Gentrification is a process of neighborhood change that includes economic change in a historically disinvested neighborhood by means of real estate investment and new, higher-income residents moving in, as well as demographic change, not only in terms of income level, but also in terms of changes in the education level or racial makeup of residents. Gentrification is complex and needs some explaining. To understand it, there are three key things to consider. The historic conditions, especially policies and practices that made communities susceptible to gentrification. The way that central city disinvestment and investment patterns are taking place today as a result of these conditions. And the ways that gentrification impacts communities. Over the last century, many policies and practices have created racialized patterns of disinvestment in city centers that have left low-income communities of color particularly susceptible to gentrification. From the 1930s through the late 60s, standards set by the federal government and carried out by banks explicitly labeled neighborhoods home to predominantly people of color as risky and unfit for investment. This practice, now known as redlining, meant that people of color were denied access to loans that would enable them to buy or repair homes in their neighborhood. Other housing and transportation policies of the mid-20th century fueled the growth of mostly white suburbs and the exodus of capital from urban centers, in a phenomenon often referred to as white flight. Take the GI Bill as an example. The program guaranteed low-cost mortgage loans for returning World War II soldiers, but discrimination limited the extent to which black veterans were able to purchase homes in the growing suburbs. In fact, the Federal Housing Administration largely required that suburban developers agree to not sell houses to black people in order for the developers to access these guaranteed loans. Left behind in central city neighborhoods, low-income households and communities of color bore the brunt of highway system expansion and urban renewal programs, which resulted in the mass clearance of homes, businesses, and neighborhood institutions, and set the stage for widespread public and private disinvestment in the decades that followed. In more recent history, the foreclosure crisis also contributed to neighborhood-level vulnerability to gentrification. 
In low-income communities of color, disproportionate levels of subprime lending resulted in mass foreclosure, leaving those neighborhoods vulnerable to investors seeking to purchase and flip homes in bulk. Today, both people and capital are flooding back into these historically disinvested neighborhoods. One reason new people are moving into these neighborhoods is because of their relative affordability. In many U.S. cities, the rental market has gotten increasingly expensive, and even moderate income earners are on the hunt for lower housing costs. This means that in some places, they are looking at historically disinvested communities, often the same neighborhoods previous generations left behind during the days of white flight. These neighborhoods are often characterized by older historic housing stock that appeals to new residents and close proximity to city centers, where jobs, restaurants, and art spaces are increasingly locating. Cities are also investing in revitalizing some of these neighborhoods, for example with improved transit access and infrastructure, in part to draw in newcomers. On the ground, gentrification may look like real estate speculation, with investors flipping properties for large profits, as well as high-end development, and landlords looking for higher-paying tenants, increased investment in neighborhood amenities like transit and parks, changes in land use, for example, from industrial land to restaurants and storefronts, and changes in the character of the neighborhood, as community-run businesses are replaced by businesses catering to new residents' needs. While increased investment in an area can be positive, gentrification is often associated with displacement, which means that in some of these communities, longtime residents are not able to stay to benefit from new investments in housing, healthy food access, or transit infrastructure. Instead, lower income families, often families of color, may find themselves facing rent increases, evictions, or other displacement pressures, and left with no other choice but to move to suburban or even exurban areas, far away from their jobs and the businesses and service providers they know. This can mean more time commuting, less time spent at home, and increased isolation, depression, and stress levels. Now, what that means is in Los Angeles, they're moving you out of Los Angeles and moving you to places like Palmdale, Lancaster. So yeah, the housing is very excellent, but you have to commute to the job. And that means that you will be in traffic one or two or three hours just to get home. For children, displacement can disrupt educational pathways and generate negative health impacts. Even for longtime residents who are able to stay in newly gentrifying areas, changes in the makeup and character of a neighborhood can lead to a reduced sense of belonging or feeling out of place in one's own home. For example, unique cultural vibrancy can be lost as places of worship see their congregants displaced to faraway cities and towns. In addition, family-run businesses and nonprofit organizations may be forced out as their customer base disperses or as their commercial rents rise past what they can sustain, affecting the ability of those who stay to access the goods and services they need. There might also be changes in neighborhood norms and policing, for example, an increased police presence in order for new residents to feel safe. On the whole, we cannot ignore that the adverse impacts of gentrification, ranging from individual health effects to the suburbanization of poverty, are only the most recent wave in a pattern of urban restructuring that has been imposed upon and negatively affected low-income and communities of color over generations. Public, private, 
and nonprofit sector leaders have the opportunity to implement strategies that give longtime residents a chance to benefit from increased investment in their communities and even be part of driving how some of the changes in their neighborhoods take place. In order to invest in communities without displacement, policies, programs, and financing tools are needed to protect renters from formal and informal displacement pressures, facilitate the production of more affordable housing, and preserve and upgrade the existing affordable housing stock. Involving community residents in planning and decision-making about their neighborhoods and region can and should be a key piece of all three of these strategies. Taken together, these strategies can help keep communities together so that everyone can enjoy access to improved schools, better food options, more job opportunities, and safer neighborhoods. day just like me just like you you're gonna wake up and realize what you are you know one day I just realized that not only was I a nigga I was a black man second then I look in the mirror and I'm like what the fuck am I how the fuck did I get here where did we come from I looked, I looked, I started to understand and realize that me being the color I am, I realized that it is fucked up and an impossible fight for us to just survive. The booby traps, the potholes, the snake pits is at every single turn. Life is like chess. Each move needs to be calculated. Foreseen ahead for maximum progress in this game of life that's detrimental to us black men, us niggas, us brothers. It's fucked up. Yes, uh, I don't think nobody wants to trade with the black man. No, no, it's like we are being assassinated from birth. Adolescents, teenagers, prejudged, murdered, killed. And still, the motherfucking war is on and the saga continues on the sidelines of dealing with so many external things that's corrupting the internal. still we strive am I to understand that you would very much support his way of doing things and him for that matter sir this is not reverse racism nor discrimination that you could tie into your statement on Hitler if the slave master is whipping the slave and blood is running down the slave's back, and the slats, incidentally, where the term cracker comes from, from the cracker man who was crack, had the crack of the whip on the slave's back. 
But if the slave takes the slave master's whip from him and starts whipping the slave master with his own whip, that is not reverse racism, that is not reverse discrimination, that is the slave getting out from under the yoke of bondage and oppression. I don't advocate what Hitler has done before the world. Hitler's struggle, I went to the Holocaust Memorial Museum and I tried to separate Hitler as a freak of nature from the rest of white people. But after all that we have gone through, I know that there's a little bit of Hitler in all white people and a lot of Hitler in And we'll be back in just... Wake your ass up, nigga! Wake your ass up!